Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. It's me and Christopher again. Christopher, who have we got on? Afternoon, Alina. We have today, we have got the Angela Findlay, who is an artist and public speaker. And she's here today to talk to us about her first book, which is, I don't know, I say this a lot, but every now and then I get a book that comes across my desk. It's absolutely amazing. And this one is one of them. Uh, it's titled In My Grandfather's Shadow. So Angela, welcome to History Hack. We're looking forward to talking to you about this. Thank you. Likewise. King, okay, let's kick off and start talking about this book. I really want to know a little bit more about what was your grandfather's early life like? So my grandfather was German. That's a starting point. And he was in the um, he was born in Plön, which is just south of Denmark. And he was brought up in a typical kind of Prussian military way. So he was a, by the age of 10. His mother died when he was young and he was a cadet in a Prussian military school where he was being instilled with all those things like discipline and honour and beauty and obedience. And um, then by the age of 21, he'd already been promoted. He clearly came from a, a kind of military family, but um, or the family going back was military. And he was clearly a very talented kind of artillerist. And by the age of 21, he'd been promoted to lieutenant and served in a regiment in the World War One in the trenches in Arras and Ypres and all those kind of, you know, the right on the front line and other places, which I haven't really been able to research that much. Then uh, he returned from the First World War kind of completely emaciated with a lump of shrapnel in his neck and with the tail end of malaria. But then with that punitive treaty of Versailles, which was designed to kind of keep Germany completely down and reduce it right down to the basics again, the army was reduced to 100,000 men. And my grandfather was chosen to be one of those those men. So he was already displaying signs then as a as really as a very good artillerist he was also an incredible athlete and he won all sorts of prizes for long jump and high jump championships um horse riding swimming and he very nearly made it to the 1936 olympic games but by that stage he was considered just too old compared to this sort of emphasis on youth that hitler hitler had so but still so he was kind of all round 
designed for a good a good soldier really very athletic soldier I've got to add before Chris jumps in with this question that you're sitting in a room with a world war one historian and we have an extensive amount of world war one historians under our hat so if you ever need any help in that regard then you're, you can get in contact with one of them or we'll you're on. I would really love to research it I just haven't been able to find find much but it also wasn't the emphasis of my research there was so much to do otherwise I could just imagine your book instead of it being one you know one small book you could have just done it in 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 bigger parts so you know the middle the beginning the end part one part two part three the thing to say possibly about my book at this stage is that it's um it it is about three generations of my my family so it's looking at the kind of my grandfather is one generation my mother German mother is another and I am the third generation and the whole book is kind of interweaving um, the three of us really into the wider story of Germany's World War II history and I just say that because it's yes it isn't just a, a narrative of my grandfather's life or even my German family's life it's how it plays right into the present as well. What leads into the, the question of what I know from the early chapters of your book, you you talk quite extensively about this, but what was it that started you on the path of researching um, your grandfather's history? Yeah, it it was strange because I never met my grandfather. He died a week after I was born. And I grew up just with this photograph of a man in uniform, the face of a portrait of a general, basically, sitting on my mother's writing desk. And... Um, and a few stories about him doing a handstand on his 60th birthday and um, of him being this incredible athlete that kind of, and that he fought in the war. And we were brought up to believe that he wasn't a, a Nazi. But I always had already as a little child, I can still see it in my mind's eye. I had this kind of abiding sense that because he died a week after I was born, that our paths had kind of crossed him on his way up and out of life and me on my way down and into life and where our paths intersected he he handed me this baton and um I never thought anything of this that was just how I knew my grandfather and it was only much later in life that this baton this image of a baton would assume a huge significance and actually be the clue to the to the whole life so um it was then later I went through all sorts of kind of unexplained symptoms of guilt and shame and and one would have imagined from some of my behaviours that I might have been traumatised by something but there was nothing in my life that really pointed to a big trauma and then it was in 2004 when I saw the film Downfall about Hitler's last days in the bunker which you've you're nodding so I can see that you've seen it and it was the weird thing was was that I just cried and I could not stop crying for four hours after that and my companion with me he kind of said Angela what are you crying about you know Hitler's dead the Nazis are finished the world war world war is over um what's there to cry about but something in that film triggered something in me and got me when I got home I googled my grandfather's name and the first thing that popped up was a photograph of the moment actually of his downfall the the moment that he is surrendering to the Americans in North Italy at the beginning of May 1945 and that was the beginning I knew then I mean it was just 
an extraordinary photograph that I'd never seen before. And that was the beginning of my search. My, my, I just set me off on this journey to uncover his life. And actually, in in doing so, I was uncovering what was going on in me as well. I think a lot of people and a lot of our listeners can relate in, in, in one way or another, maybe not directly, for example, um, having the past of of somebody from the German army. I mean, for example, in my perspective, my great grandfather also, he was a general, he fought against both the Germans and the Russians actually in 1939. And you kind of, it's this long style, like you mentioned, it's a trauma and we still don't understand it. And the trauma comes in various different aspects. So for for Poles, it's the trauma of of being, you know, the country being destroyed, the intelligentsia being destroyed. For you, it's a completely different type of trauma. But I think in a way, we can all sort of relate to each other. I don't know if that makes sort of sense of what I'm trying to say. It makes complete sense to me. And all the people that I've talked to afterwards, I've had since my book as well, I've been receiving letters from Jewish people, from Polish people, from people, from German people, from all sorts of sides of the Second World story who have come up to me and said, your story is my story. Different circumstances, outwardly completely different. And even though I'm sort of coming more from the trauma of the perpetrator side or the shame, let's put it that way. Shame is also part of trauma. And it's the kind of the silence and the inner dynamics that go on with this kind of inherited story, this inherited bundle of stuff that isn't your own, but that definitely is part of you. So yeah, I can imagine that um that you could that lots of people can relate. I love this. I just I love how open you are. Can I just say I think it's absolutely fantastic. I love it. Thank you. I've learned. I've learned actually to be open. And it is the openness in a way that was my healing. It was the with care, obviously, you don't just want to blurt out your own vulnerabilities and trauma. And it takes a huge process. I definitely wasn't open. Um, It was terrifying kind of coming out with some of this stuff but now I'm further down the line it's the openness that actually connects I think. You managed to get some uh, letters from your aunt from which were uh, written by your grandfather what did they tell you about did they give you an insight into his career as a soldier and the experiences he went through? Yeah the letters were amazing and I'm so grateful to my German aunt who typed them all up because they were all in that old Zutelin kind of German handwriting on little bits of paper often in pencil words kind of really tightly packed onto the page and she typed them all out so I could read them and they not only gave me incredible insights into the eastern front because he was in Operation Barbarossa he was in the kind of the front line of well not quite the front line because the tanks went front but he was right there from the beginning in June 41, that massive invasion into Russia. And so they first of all describe the unbelievable conditions. Um, the, it starts off with the dust and then it turns into the, the freezing snows and the, and the minus 50 degrees and the soldiers are still in, in their summer uniforms because supplies can't get through. And then when the snow thaws, it turns into this unbelievable mud where horses sink up to their bellies in and no cars no supplies can get through um it also show gives me insights into him as a 
as a man. So he's quite critical of some of the orders that he receives. He talks about the ridiculous orders from the the idiots above. You get a sense of this man who's um, who's kind of leading his men with an unbelievable sense of discipline. Um, he really he was also leading from the front, as I later heard from a man who fought in who was in his division. One thing that uh, he's I'm astonished by the bravery of these soldiers, what they're doing, sleeping in holes. Well, soldiers everywhere, really, but the distances, the vast distances that they're marching. And then it gives an insight into the partisan war, which was initially, I think it's what brutalised the Wehrmacht um, as well, because they it went against all rules of warfare that they had been trained to do and and some of the descriptions of what the partisans did even to their own in many ways were were just absolutely horrifying but then you hear something like he talks about what the that the ss are clearing up behind and that's when you realize that um yeah he was aware of the this war of annihilation that I knew nothing about when I first read these letters, but then I, I learned more and more. I knew nothing about the Second World War, quite honestly. And then you learn about this war of annihilation, that it was from the beginning, that was the orders of the German soldiers to annihilate the the Bolsheviks, the partisans, the, the commissars and, and the Jews. Um, and that's where it becomes very, very difficult reading though I actually never hear anything anti-semitic from my personally from my grandfather for him it is the Bolsheviks the communists that need to be pushed pushed back they are the the enemy and he's got this job to do um yeah it's they are astonishing astonishing at times deeply uncomfortable reading for all sorts of all sorts of reasons I mean, you've touched on this already. I think we should expand on it a little bit more, which is the the myth of the clean Wehrmacht. Because, for example, there were crimes being committed against the Poles, the Roman Sinti, all sorts were 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 happening. You like you mentioned the SS, the Einsatzgruppen behind the German army, sweeping as they go along, committing mass murders and atrocities. I mean, everybody, everybody was 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 getting it at that point. But how does your grandfather's experience this? Did he? Do you know if he experienced any of this sort of frontline massacres or frontline sort of face to face with these sorts of things? I didn't I didn't come across any mention of kind of mass executions of pits of anything like that in his in his letters. Um that's not to say that he wasn't aware of them. I can't believe that he wasn't aware of them. Um but I I try to think and I don't know if I'm being idealistic or in some way in in some sort of form of denial but as a division leader and then later as a general I feel that he there was so much to do on the front I mean there there was lots of talks about artillery and about um battles and they they got to the um the battle of Volkov that you know which was part of the sort of the outer realms of the siege of um Leningrad and and it's all about munitions and um setting up log 
corduroy roads, as they called them, through the mud. And it was getting supplies and it was meetings with generals and other people. And there was no talk, talk of that. But I many of his letters were lost as well. That has to be said. So either way, I I don't know. But this um this myth of the the clean Wehrmacht that persisted um certainly in my family that was that was how I was brought up that the Wehrmacht were clean that was actually internationally recognized wasn't it after the the Nuremberg trials had sort of declared for all the reasons <laughs> um too big to go into but they had declared the the Wehrmacht kind of clean I think they needed the Germans back on side to fight the the Cold War as well and then in 1995 the this myth was kind of blown out the water with this crimes of the Wehrmacht exhibition that was shown in Hamburg and I remember my family talking my mother talking to her family on the phone and there were just this these flutters of panic going on in there as their kind of bubble was burst um and and that just rocked so many german families who had kind of clung on to the last hopes of honor and goodness in their wehrmacht relatives and suddenly there was just photographic documentation and all sorts of other evidence that that wasn't the case but as with everything in this whole horror story, there are nuances of knowledge, of participation, of culpability, of um, ignorance, innocence, knowledge, everything. It's it's um, I don't like to make clean, clean sweeps. That's what I've really learned from writing this book. I just want to add to this that uh, obviously people that participated who were part of the Wehrmacht and participated in some of these atrocities for example of course I'm going to throw in the Warsaw Uprising because not only were the SS in there but the Wehrmacht were there committing atrocities nobody stood trial for any of these sorts of crimes and it's very frustrating so for example some of the commanders in the Warsaw Uprising they just got away scot-free it's it's just it's mind-blowing for me yeah I I I agree it's Sickens one to the to the core, actually the whole the whole idea that so many people got away. Um, what I did also want to say about the the clean Wehrmacht was that then there was the also the resistance within the Wehrmacht, and the the, the most important bit was the Stauffenberg assassination attempt in July nineteen forty four. And um, interestingly, I found out that my grandfather was approach to be part of this assassination attempt and um that shows already a certain element of trust of him being anti-Hitler and he never joined the Nazi party so he doesn't fall neatly into a category of Nazi this is what I mean about the the nuance which you all all know about but he turned down the offer to be part of the the assassination attempt because he considered it murder he considered it not the um that a soldier's duty was not to be was to be apolitical it wasn't and i found this is almost the crux of my uh, one of my biggest questions you know there was a man who was later tried for mass murder of 
you know, thousands. And then he's got this morality that declares killing one evil dictator to be murder. And I find this dichotomy between the duty he clearly felt as a soldier ingrained with this sense of duty and the oath that they'd sworn, they were bound by this oath that they'd sworn to Hitler. Um, like soldiers anywhere that they're, they feel bound by duty, they're not allowed to be political, they can't choose the wars they want to find. So I find all that un- unbelievable, incredibly interesting, really, as a moral yeah. dilemma faced with the facts of the situation. Yeah, it was quite a common thing amongst the German officer corps that they had made, they'd personally given their word, because originally this, the, the, the oath was to the state, but now that it was to Hitler himself, and they felt that, well, I've made this personal, my personal honour, my personal oath has been given, I can't betray that. And that comes back to, like as you said, the, the Prussian, the Prussian uh, military training they, a lot of them had had before the First World War. And so that was sort of ingrained in them. They found it very difficult to come to ter- mentally come to terms with it. That yes. You're right that this guy is evil. He's leading Germany. Germany itself is going to be destroyed. But I promised. <laughs> it just doesn't, yeah. it's modern world, it doesn't make sense. And also what I discovered much later in my research um, was that actually they even made a distinction between the soldiers made a distinction and Germans, in a way, made a distinction between Hitler, who was the kind of father figure, in a way, of the fatherland, the leader, and then all his kind of SS henchmen, so the, the Himmlers, and the, the those were the kind of rotten eggs. So there was not Hitler, and that's what came out in my, that my in the letters that my grandfather wrote when he was a prisoner of war, which I think we'll come to, but... Um, that I found also really, I haven't quite understood how that comes about, but anyway. Oh, I can jump down, quickly jump down a rabbit hole about not, uh, how the Nazi state is run and how it's perceived, but <laughs> that's, that's, that's for another time. Uh, Get yourself uh, um, back on track, Chris, back on track. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm getting there. I was, I was just winding up. So uh, talking of Nazism, how much, because it, it, it pervades everything in 1930s Germany it's literally everywhere how how affected was your family by Nazism yeah so that is um my grandmother died in uh, before I was able to ever properly ask her when I used to ask her about her life in the war and in Nazi Germany as a child she'd very quietly carefully changed the subject she was really that her experiences were wrapped in the silence that so many Germans were and still are actually to this to this day so I I don't know from her point of view um neither ever joined the Nazi party but the children my mother born in 1934 just a year after Hitler came to power um, or the year, I can't remember exactly, or became chancellor, she would have been exposed to Nazi education from the from the very, very start. So every single subject was infused in this Nazi ideology and this racial hier- hierarchy with the Aryans at the top and the, the Jews as the and the um and the Romani as the kind of absolute untermensch. They were taught in geography about the geo 
politics of how Germany had a bigger bigger population per landmass. So there was this need for Lebensraum and the expansion to the east. They were what I find the most insidious was that the children were told not only through education, but through all the little groups like the Hitler Youth. Um, they were taught to be hard as Kruppstahl, which was Krupp was the maker of steel, and how they weren't allowed to show emotions. Showing emotions was seen as as weakness. And, and I think this really suppressed the development of these, these young children who were being shaped and molded from every single direction into good little Nazis who were going to produce children and keep the home fire burning and provide homes and and um soldiers to fight and they were all instilled with this devotion to to hitler and the, this whole personality cult and i did i do see traces of that in my in my mother um i think as an artist myself the the realm of what i call the soul and anybody can take it how they want but the the sort of our inner world where creativity often springs from. I think for many of these young children, it was kind of snuffed out in the bud. It 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 didn't develop and that left this kind of void. And then of course there were um yeah, then then later came the the bombings and the the lack of food and eventually the the flight of my my family from their home just outside Berlin, um, a place called Uteborg, and fleeing from this, the approaching Soviets who were, and with this approach of the Soviets came the rumours, um, which weren't rumours actually, but of these mass rapes of children and women, anybody from the age of eight to 80 as as vengeance. So Oh, yes. And they swept their way from 1944, even 1943, all the way through Eastern Central Europe, all the way to Germany and did the same thing that they did over there that they did in Germany. And it was it was beyond horrific. I mean, women had to dirty themselves up so they looked like old women or the men would hide if there were men in the family left, they would hide people in the basement, like their wives and their daughters. It was, it was horrible, absolutely horrible. And the thievery and the stealing and being looting. I mean, I mean, wow, hold on. Isn't that what's happening in Russia right now? Sorry, not going down a rabbit hole, but they were doing exactly the same thing back then that they're still doing now. And it hasn't changed. No, it's, it's, horrifying I think this repetition of history which is another reason I wrote wrote the book because if we don't really identify what are the the lessons and if we we don't talk about these kind of things and learn the lessons we're always going to be in danger of, of repeating them. Uh, what, what was your mother's experience of of the home front during the war time during war? So I think um, school School continued for quite a while, though sometimes interrupted by these bombs. And um, and I think the I think all was I think it was a relatively, relatively happy childhood in a way, because they were a, a very close knit family, a loving, loving family. But my mother did have stories of things like walking into the local shop um, opposite their house. And she just said, good morning. 
and the there was a teacher in there one of her teachers who said why didn't you say Heil Hitler and she said well my mummy said that we didn't have to to people that we knew well the teacher went off and reported this um, and shortly after the Gestapo came and arrested my grandmother took her off for questioning and it was really only the fact that my grandmother could say that her husband was fighting on the front, that he was a Wehrmacht officer fighting on the front, that um, that she was released. But that was how easy it was to to kind of be caught out and taken taken away. So uh, there were all sorts of of little stories like like that of her. But the, I think the worst one was the the flight when the um, when suddenly the the Russians had reached Cottbus, which was about 40 miles from their home, and they were making incredible advances. So my grandmother decided to send the two youngest children, my mother and her younger sister, off to live with the grandparents in the west of, um, in the northwest, north of Hamburg in Schleswig-Holstein. And my mother was and her little sister were woken up at four o'clock in the morning, very quickly told to choose a doll. And then off they went um, to this this station. And there, I think my mother's sort of main trauma happened with her fleeing these unbelievably, these heaving stations with everybody trying to get out. Berlin was in bombed and in ruins and in flames and the two and the two children were kind of shoved through the window and um off they went now not knowing if they were going to see their mother older sister older brother father anybody ever ever again and I think that was an incredibly traumatic traumatic moment at the age of 10 years old um and then later weeks and weeks later um, the that was in February 45 and I think in about April late April 45 the family the mother and the older daughter locked their locked their front door and with just the suitcases that they were carrying left and um, lost lost everything leaving the older brother the 15 year old son um, fighting operating on these 88 millimeter flat guns shooting down I mean when you see pictures he looks like he looks like a a little boy with these big dressed in these uniforms and with other his little mates shooting down the airplanes and experiencing horrific things for a for a 15 year old but but believing they were fighting they were an important part of fighting for the the Nazi the Third Reich in Vaterland. Which again uh, loops back to Downfall. But you have the scene. It's, it's for me. It's one of the high points of the movie. Is the uh, the Hitler Youth manning the flak gun in the streets in Berlin, and uh, they're just they're just boys, they're and just... Uh, the lieutenant who's clearly like eighteen himself, and uh, the wounded soldier. The, his the, one of the boys' fathers comes out, and he's like, "You are all going to die." And but yeah, they're all sat there ready to do their duty, and it's just. It's just horrifying. I, I saw the pictures in your book, and it was just—you're right—they're just just children. It's mm. just heartbreaking. I was thinking, funnily enough, exactly the same thing as you were speaking. Mm. That's the only thing that was just going through my mind. These little boys with the helmets, the heads can't even fit into it. Oversized military clothing—it was just awful. And some of them were were really, really vicious as well because they were so indoctrinated in this as well and had no—they uh, were just sort of. Feral, feral, really, and and um, and I think that 
that's when sort of being a perpetrator traumatizes as well, doesn't it? These sort of little children doing these unspeakable acts and witnessing the the level of death. I mean, my uncle, I think his his commander got blown up and his arm landed on on his lap. You know, it was sort of things like that that you wouldn't you wouldn't recover from easily. I don't think. But he he did survive. Your grandfather, the war is the war ends in Italy. Coincidentally, where my grandfather's war ended as well, and he goes, he becomes a prisoner of war. But how, what were, were his experiences as a prisoner, and then coming back into sort of post-war Germany? Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This was, this was, I think, where my grandfather's kind of, um, he sounded kind of okay when he was fighting, when he, he sounded almost in his element as a soldier. I think he was doing what every soldier is trained to do um, to a degree and other things. But, um, and then, the his downfall so he surrendered he became he was put in charge of 150,000 um German prisoners of war in the north of Italy in in Rimini and I think just in outdoor camps barbed wire camps and he tried to appeal for slightly better conditions like soap for his men and got very angry that the the um Geneva Convention the rules or whatever of the Geneva Convention weren't being adhered and clearly nobody was interested in treating German um, prisoners of war well so he then Italy wasn't too bad but then once he got after about a year there he got sent to Germany to two different prisoner of war camps under the British and that's I think where the real humiliation humiliation began he was still in uniform years um or year over a year after still in his uniform um they they lost huge amounts of of weight the cold the winters of 46 and 47 were 45 and 46 were incredibly cold they had little tiny um log burners often running out of fuel um many people uh, he knew kind of committed suicide. He was outraged by the news that he was getting of what had, what was happening to the Germans who were all fleeing. His whole world was falling apart. His whole, everything that he'd been fighting for really was, um, yeah, 
falling apart and above all he was he he had this massive smoking addiction to tobacco and so his both his war and his imprisonment were kind of hugely impacted by the amount of tobacco he had or had or didn't have that kind of infuses all all his letters he was then it was all uncertain they had no idea of how long they were going to be kept um I think the army were kept till the last the Luftwaffe and the navy were tried first and then the army and in 1948, he was eventually tried for Nazi war crimes. For He was accused of being a militarist and a danger to society and a national socialist and stuff. And eventually he was found not guilty on all counts. And um, he was released in 1948. And that's when he returned home a completely emaciated and broken man. And he he ended up kind of selling whittling yo-yos and selling them from door to door and selling growing and selling tomatoes and basically smoking himself to a um to an early grave can I just ask what was it like I'm assuming you did read the court testimonies and the trial and everything else how did you feel having to read through all of that I watched so much um footage and yeah read so many books both um novels and fact and mm, documents and and of course and all of it just so unbelievable and horrific and I cried many many tears and still can actually reading some of these accounts and they're still coming out aren't they they're all the time these accounts coming out I don't think there's anything that makes it less awful nothing that I've found that makes it less awful reading and hearing and and imagining what went on um and then I remember in Budapest when I was in the war of terror no there's a there's a museum called something like the war museum of terror or something like that and I was watching yet more footage of emaciated corpses being shoveled into pits and and there was something something inside me that just went okay stop you've you've looked at this enough you you don't need to look anymore you you kind of know what went on and to continue to look at this stuff is not going to help anything it's certainly not going to help you anymore um and that's when I did kind of gently close the book on making myself try and face all of this you you come I I think it was becoming incredibly detrimental that doesn't mean to say I'm now closing my ears but for my own sanity and health and ability to kind of recover from this and be a functioning human being um I I had to sort of stop and I still do watch things I still find the subject infinitely fascinating but I do it now more as a way of informing myself of new perspectives um trying to put my thoughts into words it's very difficult Germany as a as a whole and Japan as well they've had to deal with it's referred to as war of guilt and it's sort of pushed down onto the other onto following generations and it's very difficult for people to sort of say well 
try and think about what their grandparents were involved in or if they were involved at all but there's a kind of collective guilt Mm. I think this collective there was a kind of collective denial first of all and then there was a kind of collective silence and or denial at being accused of complicity and then there was this collective silence that descended over Germany and then this kind of collective trauma and guilt and shame and this really really potent cocktail that nobody knew how to deal with it was too horrific and too painful really to talk about to to admit that there might have been a Nazi in the family or that there was a full-blown Nazi in the family that and I think that's to a degree still going on today on a personal level but in the um in the 80s and 90s sort of after the reunification of Germany I think partly under pressure and part partly under pressure of the allies and partly under pressure of the younger generations right from the late 60s kind of there was this pressure to break the silence and to talk about it it was seen as this silence and the fact that so many Nazis former Nazis were back in positions of power and enjoying second successful second careers it was kind of untenable for for um for for younger generations and that's when I think people started the, the country as a whole began this process of what they call Vergangenheitsbewältigung, which is sort of the coping with or the trying to f- the the um overcoming or the dealing with the the past and I think that's when the artists really came with it I think it's that the artists led this movement of trying to create these memorials this counter memorial movement that unlike all our memorials which look to things that we which basically remember things we want to remember and that we want other generations to remember Germany's whole culture went into um, remembering everything that they wanted to forget everything that people wanted to move on and leave in the past and not only remember it but apologize for it and atone for it so this extraordinary culture um infused this whole Vergangenheitsbewältigung kind of infused every layer of society cultural historical educational and increasingly so with the third generations which is what I am the kind of or what I call myself the the grandchildren generation who have a bit more distance to the whole thing um that's now being processed more on a on a personal level but it's been a a massive massive question and and I think um there's still a lot of blame coming from other you know people say people often said to me oh they all knew they're all responsible talking about the whole collective German German population but as I I swung between yes of course they all knew and then I swung between well No, I looked at kind of today. What do we know? You know, my other career was working in prisons and I give lectures about prisons and how the arts can work in prisons. And the response I get to all the horrific conditions of our prison service, um, prison system and the issues of prisoners. And everybody says, gosh, I had no idea. And that's with 
media outlets full of stuff about, you know, we've got so much access to what's going on in prison and everybody in this country lives probably not more than 40 miles away from the nearest jail. And yet nobody has any idea of what's going on in them, let alone partly because they choose not to and let alone doing anything about it. So I sort of apply the same thinking of we are all getting on with our lives primarily and horrific things are happening in our world that touch sort of all that come quite close to our world and yet we're not doing anything about it how different how difficult it would have been in those times to stand up or do something about a regime that was you very that would very likely kill you if if you did do something so I do ask myself the question sort of what would what would I have done um and what do I do in the face of these injustices going on in the world to a much later lesser degree um of course at the moment anyway which is would uh, come out in in Carl's letters where he said he's concentrating on artillery needs the fact that he hasn't got any tobacco what his men are going through and he's just not thinking about what the SS are doing or the Einsatzgruppen or it's his concern is I'm concerned about my men I'm concerned about how I'm fighting the war that's I know it's happening but that's happening over there and I, I don't need to think about that because it's nothing for me to think about yeah and I think um there was a very very good book called Soldaten or Soldiers by um Zunke Neitzel I think it is and and Harald Welzer um I might have got that wrong, but um, and in it, they also find that most of the, the soldiers, the the conscripted soldiers or the they they weren't fighting an ideological war. I, I never found the idea ideology of Nazism sort of infiltrating my grandfather's letters. It was a war that they had to fight and the soldiers the same. There was They discovered in all these letters and recordings of these soldiers that there was actually very little sort of passionate um, ideolo- ideological kind of uh, fervor or, or sort of goals. In the SS, completely different. That was something very different but in the in the ordinary soldiers they wanted promotion they were talked about the last battle their little moment of bravery their homesickness their their friends um their all those kind of things that soldiers the world over probably do talk so so yeah it's complicated you briefly spoke about i mean we spoke about it a little bit more intensively than extensively sorry then then briefly but your mother was indoctrinated into the Nazi ideology she was very young she went through school so talk us through a little bit how your mother's trauma of all of this affected you yes I I mean my mother was sort of 10 years old really so she whether in doctorate, she was definitely influenced or impact. She was infused with, uh, yeah, and probably indoctrinated is is the right word. And I think I think growing up, um, my mother was a very very loving mother, but there was something about her that was both a kind of vulnerability and a, a void that we as children would often bump up against or um, or fall into this sort of 
either an emotional void or it was almost like a hard wall. And I think it's that I can only explain it as a kind of the protect the frozen feelings in trauma. Things are frozen in time. Emotions. The moment is kind of frozen. And I think sometimes we well, I certainly bumped into this this frozenness this this lump of something that was impenetrable and being quite a sensitive personality that I am and and kind of artistic feelings are very important to me and and I think um that kind of caused problems between us it caused a kind of clash I kind of wanted to shake her into feeling things like like I did or like I thought everybody should or would and that caused clashes I think big big clashes and it caused and also I think the this the sense of the Nazi ideal that there is even a hierarchy that there is a kind of level of perfectionism that people should strive to achieve I think that is really difficult to shake off if you've been given given that and all my siblings we all fought against that we didn't we didn't want to be at the pinnacle of the the top of the pile we didn't want to belong to that that club and so that and and then not belonging to that club caused kind of feelings of failure or um or we were made to maybe feel inadequate or failure or or whatever and it took quite a long time to unravel that and to gain a sense of self-worth of being just who we were without having to be this this ideal so I think those two two elements really kind of impacted um, and led to kind of problems like, you know, depressions and um, dipping in and out of different addictions and low self-esteem, that kind of thing, Um, all of which shaped me in a way. But I also feel, in retrospect, quite a lot of gratitude that I was given this kind of knotty, knotty, biography or this lump of really potent stuff to unravel because it led to a huge amount of personal growth I think um for which I really am very very grateful for so yeah Angela this has been like I said at the beginning it's such it's such an amazing book it's such a reading it was such a journey and I think we've only just sort of scratched the surface in the in the 40 odd minutes we've been we've been chatting but would you mind um reminding us where um the title of your book and where they can get it from please and where, and when it's out so the the book is out already in hardback it's called in my grandfather's shadow and it's published by penguin transworld and bantam press it's out i think in in all outlets all major outlets or can be ordered from any bookshop and the paperback is coming out at the end of april We'll um we'll get it on the uh, History Hack Bookshop as well, and that way the podcast will get a tiny slice of money, and you'll get a larger slice of money than if it goes through uh, Darth Amazon. Right, lovely. Thank you. It's all good. <laughs> Angela, thank you so Certainly. much for joining us. It's been really great. I loved it, and the book is now on my Amazon wish list. Even though we're trying to not give money to Amazon, it's <laughs> the only way I can get books over into Poland. So. Oh, it's been a real pleasure talking with you both. Thank you so much for having me on. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, 
You can support them and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book.